Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, a quick word about our upcoming launch of a third service at 4.30 p.m. In your handout, you probably saw this guy. We've been making mention of it. Um, in order to make the 4.30 service happen, we're going to need uh, some more help and volunteers and you all serving in different ways. And so uh, we'd like you to consider serving and helping us with that 4.30 service. So if that's something that you could do, there's different serving opportunities, children, hospitality, worship, usher, greeters, security, parking lot. I was going to start making up things. Um, uh, but let us know. Put your contact information there. You could put it in the, in, there'll be baskets on your way out or you could put in the offering boxes as well. But then you put that down and a ministry leader will reach out to you. Also, if it's not a commitment, like if you just have questions, uh, a ministry leader will reach out to you. And then also on top of that, um, if if you can't serve that 4.30 service, but you're like, hey, I, I think I could maybe serve in one of the two morning services, go ahead and fill this out, and someone will reach out to you, and you can just let them know when they call you, hey, I, I can't do 4.30, but we can, we can make something in the morning work, because we have so many new faces and no, so many new people, people plugging in. We need more help at the first two services as well. Uh, additionally, if you look at all three of those services, 9, 11, 4.30, and you have zero preference on which one, you know which one I'd ask you to go to? Go to the 4.30. Because we are, are filling up uh, at the first two morning services. So if it's something where you, you have zero preference, consider going to that 4.30 service and then allowing a little bit more space uh, in here. Because we've had some full Sundays. A couple weeks ago, we had just under, like a, just under 200 kids. Um, it was like 170-something. That doesn't include junior high or high school. Um, so there's just there's a lot of people. There's people under the tent outside, there's people in the family room, and so if you have no preference, consider that 4.30 service. And let me just remind you how great it is, an honor and a privilege to serve our Lord. Um, There's nothing better you can do with your time um, than serving him and his people. So uh, it's pretty cool to see what's going on, and so let's just keep moving forward, keep up with the momentum, further up, further in. Okay, there you have it, the book of Ruth. Last week, we started the book of Ruth, and we read this, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay. If you were here last week, you, you remember that just in this one verse, like whole worlds open up, almost every other word in this introduction is a word filled with meaning and background and history. And so before we get on with today's text, what I'd like to do is briefly review a little bit of last week to make sure we're all sort of on the same page with what the narrative is doing. So, in the days when the judges ruled. Judges is a chronological time point, roughly 1,200 years before the time of Jesus. But more importantly than that, Judges is a time of complete like, like social and spiritual chaos. The, the, the majority of the stories in the book of Judges, they don't make it into the children's storybook Bible. Like, they just get left out. And, there's a, and you say, well, what about Gideon and Samson? They sort of get included, but those stories are highly edited. Like, you're not even getting the full picture with those ones. So the time of Judges is a dark time. And there is a famine in the land. The reason why this is important, if you recall, is it's not just talking about it, a physical famine. Because at this time in Israel's history, Israel is in a covenant relationship with God, and God has said that if they are faithful in the land, the promised land, then the land will produce food. 
If they are unfaithful, then part of the consequence of that is that the land won't produce food. So by saying there's a famine in the land, the author is letting you know there's a physical famine and there also is a spiritual famine. Both things are true. And then we're told a man from Bethlehem comes into the scene. Bethlehem is composed of two Hebrew words, bet meaning house and lehem meaning bread. Put it together and you get house of bread. So there is a famine in the house of bread. You feel that? You feel that like tension, the contradictions of famine in the house of bread? It's like there is no spaghetti in the spaghetti factory. Like, how can the factory of spaghetti not have spaghetti? Like, it doesn't make sense. So in the days of the judges and there is a famine in the house of bread. In Judah, which tells us we're in the promised land. The promised land is the land of abundance, of milk and honey. This place is supposed to be filled with food. And because of all this, this man sojourns to the country of Moab. And this is probably the most important detail in that the first readers of this text would look at a man going to Moab and go, what in the world is he thinking? Moab is the last place on the world an Israelite should travel to. And there's a reason for that. We looked at sort of the origin story last week but we'll go through it sort of with the lightning round. The origin story of Moab begins in Genesis 19, where a man named Lot flees the destruction of Sodom and flees into the hill region with his two daughters. The daughters intoxicate their father, and there is a sexually immoral, incestuous relationship that occurs. And out of that sexually immoral relationship, the daughters become pregnant. One of the daughters names her child made through this immoral relationship, Moab, which is similar to the Hebrew words Moab, from or of father. So the beginning origin story to Moab is one of complete evil sin and sexual immorality. Then in Numbers 22, the king of Moab hires a diviner to curse the people of Israel. In Numbers chapter 25, the men of Israel participate in sexual immorality with the women of Moab. And after the sexual immoral relationships occur, the women invite the men to worship their gods. And the men accept that invitation, and the men of Israel begin to worship the gods of Moab. And then on top of all of that, in Judges chapter 3... The people of Moab and their king oppressed the people of Israel. And the reason why that last note is important is if in Judges chapter 3, the people of Moab are conquering and oppressing the people of Israel, that's in the living memory of the people who are alive in the time of Ruth because when is Ruth taking place? In the time of the Judges. So all of that to say, for the first readers of this text, when you hear Moab, you're going like, no way. And for all of those reasons and more, in Deuteronomy, it says this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Rough, huh? When we encountered this last week, we said, you, you almost react to it. Like, what? Why would God cut a people off to the tenth generation even forever? Like why, why is that there? And you immediately want to try to kind of maybe wiggle out of it, but just let the Bible speak in the manner it's, it's speaking. Don't rush to try and say, well, that's not what that really means, or that's not what's really going on. Feel the weight of this. 
let the Bible do its work. It knows what it's doing. Because we're about to engage with the story of a woman named Ruth, a Moabite who enters into the promised land. Additionally, last week we looked at sort of what we might call like a conceptual or symbolic translation of the introduction to Ruth, in that many of the words, as we've said, had, there's like a whole world behind a single word. So for instance, when we say in the time of the judges, that's kind of similarly to, similar to say, in the times of complete and utter unfaithfulness. Likewise, many of the names used in the introduction in Hebrew literally mean something. So as we dig in, I just want to review sort of the, the kind of conceptual and narrative landscape. So in the days of the judges, or unfaithfulness, there is a famine in the land of promise and plenty, that's the promised land, and a man from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and Judah went to sojourn in Moab, Sin City, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was God is King, Elimelech, and the name of the other, the name of his wife, Naomi, sweet or pleasant. And the names of the two sons were sick son and dead son, which should give, this is called foreshadow. Um, They were Epaphrathites from the house of bread in Judah. They went into the country of Sin City and disobediently remained there. But Elimelech, or God is king, the husband of Naomi, sweet or pleasant, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took women birthed of sins. They took Moabites as wives. The first readers would look at these Moabite women and say, these are sinful, wicked people birthed in sin. They took them as wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about 10 years, and both sick son and dead son died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So you have to understand that Naomi is going to return to the promised land after she's experienced misery upon misery and tragedy after tragedy. She has experienced famine, death, exile, barrenness, widowhood. I mean, just a complete shattering of her life. And so because of this, she tells her two daughter-in-laws, the only surviving loved ones that she pretty much has, like, go back to Moab. I'm gonna go back to Israel, but don't come with me. You're Moabite, You're not to be over there. You'll be looked down upon. You'll be judged. We live in wicked times. Go back to Moab, and maybe you can have a future. Maybe you can remarry. Maybe you can have kids. Maybe you can have a family. There's something for you in Moab, but don't come back with me to Israel. I'm going to Bethlehem. Let me be. Then all three women who have just experienced absolute tragedy lifted up their voices and wept. In the ancient world, you say goodbye, that's forever. It's not social media. It's not like you know, reach out and call someone on your cell phone. The, the last remaining people that you know and love are in front of you and you're parting ways. And so they weep bitterly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth says, I will not leave you. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She begins to swear allegiance to the God of Israel. And now, Naomi and Ruth begin their journey back to the promised land. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? 
She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they went to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, first note. There's a name change. Naomi says, don't call me that any longer. Call me Mara. If you recall, Naomi is something like sweet or pleasant. And now she's saying, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Mara in Hebrew means bitter. And if you're really familiar with the Hebrew scripture, especially at the beginning, you might remember another story that talks about Mara. Because in the, in the Exodus story, as the people of Israel leave oppression and slavery in Egypt, they're brought into the wilderness and they're faced with the problem. They have no water. And so they're going to die, no water, and then they find some water, but you can't drink the water because the water is Mara. And the place is called, to put it on the nose, Mara. There's Mara water in Mara. And so the Lord does a miracle. He changes the bitter Mara water into palatable water, drinkable, sweet, pleasant water. And so within the Exodus story, you have something of a miracle occurring where that which is bitter is turned into something pleasant. Naomi is is almost saying the inverse is what's true of me. I went away pleasant, sweet, and I have returned bitter, Mara. And she attributes this, her language is strong. The Lord has testified against me and brought this calamity upon me. So in her brokenness, in her pain, we don't know everything that's going on in her mind. She is saying, God God is the one who did this to me. But here's the point that we took away from last week. With her pain and her brokenness, and with whatever understanding or not understanding she has, she goes in the direction of God. She's heard that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has visited his people, and she returns to the location where she knows him to be. So with her brokenness, with her pain, with everything that's going on in her life, she goes towards him, not away. Important to note, too, look at verse 22, the emphasis on Ruth being a Moabite. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And you'll see this repetition of the Moabite and Moab. So it's not as if, oh, her being a Moabite is a little side story or not that of important detail to the story. Like the author is winking at you. Don't forget this is a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. You know what we said about Deuteronomy? They're not even allowed into the 10th generation. Ruth is a Moabite. So that's at the front of our attention. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Okay, Um, Ruth is a Moabite. She is a widow. She is essentially in in, in a place of destitution and desperation. 
And she hears of a field. In verse 2, it says, and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. So you have to understand the vulnerable situation that she finds herself in. If you're a widow, we talked about this last week, in the ancient Near Eastern world, she doesn't have father or older brothers or husband to protect her. She is in an extreme state of vulnerability. And now she's going to do like the ancient Near Eastern biblical version of begging, but it's a little different than begging because she's going to go glean. And gleaning is not begging in that you don't do anything. You have to go do something. You have to work for it at least. It's not just the receiving of something. Now, if you're unfamiliar with gleaning, gleaning is based upon laws that appear in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And in those two books, it outlines what you are to do when you harvest your crop. And what it says is that when you're harvesting the crop, you're supposed to leave the edges. You don't, in other words, you don't pick everything to the edge. You leave some behind. And that is so the sojourner, the poor, the widow, the orphan can come and find sustenance and provision. Additionally, it outlines the fact that you aren't supposed to like, be focused on making sure every last thing gets picked. So if you have a vineyard and you have some grapes, efficiency is not the point. You're not supposed to be like, I gotta get every last grape. No, leave some behind. And then if something falls on the ground, you leave it. And so the edges and all around the field, there was leftovers so that those who were, who, who were in destitution and desperation could come and find provision. And so Ruth is now put in a place where she is going to go glean. Now, we're introduced to this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is introduced to us as a worthy man, which is incredibly interesting for a couple of reasons. First, um, where does this worthy man come from? He is a worthy man in an unworthy time. And again, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, like it's pure chaos. There's like evil all of the time. Nevertheless, in the midst of that type of spiritual darkness, out of nowhere, we're introduced to a worthy man in unworthy times. Second, it's important to know that when the Bible gives you a added description of a character that it introduces, it's usually really important to understanding the plot, the narrative, and that individual. So, for example, in the Bible, if, if you're introduced to someone and it says they're handsome, usually that's a very important part to the story. So there's a guy named Absalom who's described as like handsome, more handsome than anybody else. And that's definitely going to be a part of the narrative. Oftentimes the Bible will depict people to let you know that they're really tall. So Saul is tall. This person's taller than all the other people. And it's a running joke. We've made note of it multiple times, but usually, not universally, but usually when the Bible is letting you know someone is tall, it's because they're trying to give you a clue that they're kind of wicked, kind of going to go astray. So it doesn't favorably look upon, upon those people. Now, when it comes to shorter individuals, there's usually a much more favorable, positive look. They are seen as upright, morally integrous people that God uses. Um... This isn't universally true, but it happens to be true a lot of the time. Or, for instance, David, like everyone's waiting for me to say, just kidding. (laughs) This is in the Bible, man. Check it out. It's not me. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. A little bit. David is ready. And all of these kind of little character descriptions that are added are important. So what we get told about this guy, Boaz, is he's a worthy man. In Hebrew, this phrase is gibor hayil. 
And it, it could be translated worthy man. It could be a man of valor, a valiant man. Um, sometimes it can mean someone who's wealthy, but like also not just like with money, but with like character. And the reason why this is incredibly important is it ties into something that we discussed last week. If you were here, you might recall that in the ordering of our English Bibles, the book of Ruth comes after the book of Judges. So it's very early. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And the reason for that is historically, Ruth is taking place in the time of Judges, so they put Judges and Ruth right next to each other. However, in some of the ancient Hebrew orderings of the scriptures, the book of Ruth appears after the book of Proverbs. And if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, and you might be familiar with that the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, the last half of it describes like this ideal, excellent woman. Oftentimes it's called the Proverbs 31 woman or the Proverbs 31 wife. And you just read it, and it's like, she does this, and she does this, and she is known here, and her character, and her holiness, and it's like, if you have this woman as a wife, if you're so blessed, honor her and respect her, give thanks to God. Now, um, this is fascinating, because if you were to read this description of, like, the ideal woman, if you were reading it with that Hebrew ordering of the books, you would read the description of the, this ideal woman, this perfect, excellent woman, and then the very next page would introduce you to a woman named Ruth. Now, it goes even further than that. There's a greater connection because Boaz is a Gabor Hayil. The Proverbs 31 woman is introduced to us as an Ishet Hayil. She is Ishet Hayil, and Boaz is Gibor Hayil, the worthy man and the worthy woman which is the book, of Prover- I mean, the book of Proverbs combined with the book of Ruth, it might be trying to tell you something. Like in times, in unworthy times, when there is just complete spiritual darkness, if you want an example of what a worthy man looks like, a Gibor Hayil, you have Boaz. And if you want to know what an Ishet Hayil, a worthy woman, is like an excellent woman, you have Ruth. These are living, walking, breathing examples of the worthy man and worthy woman. It goes on, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, we know it's the time of judges, and there's like complete wickedness, so it makes this kind of interesting, because you not only have a worthy man in Boaz, but you have him saying, you know, the Lord be with you, and then his workers, and the Lord bless you as well. They might just be giving lip service. They may not even like Boaz. It's just, he's the boss, and we know he's faithful to the God of Israel. And we'll say, the Lord bless you, and then we take out our little idol that we worship that we got from Moab. I mean, we we don't know. Or it could be the fact that Boaz and his workers are all a faithful remnant. Or it could be something like, Boaz is such a godly man that he has an influence over his people, and even though they were in a dark times, around Boaz, there, there's this developing faithful remnant of people who worship God. Now, no matter what is true kind of historically, just know that Boaz is the type of man, even if you are just faking it to please your boss, when Boaz steps up, you know he blesses you in the name of the Lord, and you respond with blessing in the name of the Lord which says something about the character of this man. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, at this point, there's a temptation in this story. That's a temptation that many people fall into. You might have heard the book taught or preached in a similar manner, or maybe if you've fallen into this, and especially if you know the full story of Ruth, I can see why this happens, but it's not good. And what I mean is this. You start to immediately read in like the romantic story um, because this is the first encounter of Ruth and Boaz, the worthy man and the worthy woman. And so you start seeing like Boaz is looking and his eye is drawn to this beautiful woman who's working and she's trying to impress him because she's working super hard. Like, okay. Ruth is a mourning, broken woman who has lost everything and is now in a foreign land. The reason why she is working so hard is because she doesn't want to starve to death and she doesn't want her mother-in-law to starve to death. She's not looking for romance. She's not looking for a new husband. She's looking not to starve to death with her mother-in-law. And so she's gleaning, dependent upon the mercies of others. It's very interesting that what's, what's noted in this passage is that she's working hard. Like out of all the things you could describe, it lets you know this about her. Ruth is a hard worker. She, she, so she came and she had continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Like that might not sound like a big deal. It's like, well, I wish if I ever the Bible recorded something about me, it would be more than, than I took, only took one break. But actually, that's, that's not, that's not, that's like important. She is working hard so that she could provide for her mother-in-law. Ruth is showing her chesed. Now, we talked about this Hebrew word chesed last week. And oftentimes, it's translated like loving kindness or mercy. But chesed is, it's like an idea. It's, it's, it's like the idea of going above and beyond in love and faithfulness. Going above and beyond the call of duty, above and beyond expectations with demonstrable actions of love and faithfulness. This is really important because it's not just, I have hesed for you. The hesed's in my heart. Hesed by nature says, no, it's not just about what's in your heart, like I love you in my heart. Hesed is demonstrable, visible actions that demonstrate above and beyond love and faithfulness. Now, what has Ruth shown to Naomi? Hesed. She was married to her son. The marriage is done. The covenant's done because of the, the, the death deal is till his part part happened, she owes Naomi nothing. And Naomi, in fact, is telling her, go back to your people. But Ruth goes above and beyond in her love and faithfulness and care for her mother-in-law. And now she's working all day except for one break to get enough food. And Boaz notices. He notices her character. He makes note of her character. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Okay, this gives you a glimpse into the darkness of the time of the judges. 
we're in a period that is so dark that Boaz assumes that if he doesn't give the word, then this woman would be assaulted. It says, I've, I've charged my men not to touch you. That's, that's not simply describing touch. This is talking about assault. Boaz says, Ruth, listen, don't go into any other field. Stay in my fields. Stay close to the young women who are under me. I've charged my young men not to touch you. And so we are in such a time that Boaz has to give his order so that Ruth is protected. Stay near here. Don't go far. Don't drift. Stay in this field with these women, and I'm going to do my best to give you protection here. That's the darkness of the time. Now, you might be asking, like, why is Boaz doing all of this? Why is Boaz doing this? He's, he's showing her chesed. He doesn't owe Ruth anything. She's a Moabite. It's probably hurting Boaz's reputation to give this concern for a Moabite woman. But nevertheless, that doesn't matter. Boaz, being a Gabor Hayil, a worthy man, is demonstrating this. But like, what's, what's his motivation for this? Well, that's partially answered in what occurs next. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why are you doing this? Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. What did Boaz, Boaz notice about this woman? Her character, her chesed, her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. It's like all of this has been made known to me. So part of the reason why he's showing chesed to her is he's seen her chesed to one of his own people, Naomi. But there's more. There's more going on. And in order to understand this, we have to look to another story that occurs sort of before this, a little bit before this chronologically in the book of Joshua. And when you hear this story, you're going to see the parallels. Like the story that takes place in the Joshua is it's almost like the same story taking place here. It just has some character switches and some, some inversions going on. So in the book of Joshua's, Joshua, we encounter a woman named Rahab. Rahab lives in Jericho and she is a Canaanite prostitute. God has pronounced judgment upon Jericho and he said to his people, I'm going to destroy Jericho. But before he destroys the city of Jericho, he sends in a couple spies to go kind of like check out the land. And so these two spies make their way into Jericho and they make their way into Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute's home. And at this point, Rahab has an option. She can turn them in Hey, man, there's some spies here. Our enemies here. Get these dudes. Or she can offer them protection. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, the outsider, not a Moabite, but very similar, an ultra outsider, and now she has an opportunity. Do I turn these people in or do I offer them protection? This is what Rahab says to the Israelites, Israelite men. I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us all and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt 
And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. Essentially, Rahab's going, man, I've heard about what happened in Egypt. I heard about the 10 plagues. I heard about the crossing of the sea. I've heard about the judgment that has been brought upon wicked people, and I don't want any of that. And she begins to give her allegiance to the God of Israel. The last sentence here, she says, your God, he is God of heaven above and earth beneath. In other words, the God of Israel isn't just some territorial deity among many. He's God of heaven and earth. I've heard about his works. And she's beginning to align herself and give her allegiance to the God of Israel. She goes on. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, want to guess the Hebrew word for kindly here? As I've shown you chesed, I don't owe, I don't, I don't owe you this. I am going above and beyond what I am required to do to give you an act of kindness and mercy. So because I've given you chesed, dealt kindly with you, you also will deal Show, kind, uh, show chesed, deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive not only me, but my father and my mother, my brothers, my sister, she's caring for the whole family and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will chesed, with you. We will deal kindly and faithfully with you. That's powerful. And then what happens is is she shows him this this chesed and ultimately Jericho is destroyed and Rahab then joins the people of Israel and becomes a worshiper of the God of Israel. Now follow this. There is an ultimate outsider, a Canaanite prostitute who demonstrates chesed to the people of Israel. And in turn, she joins their people and begins to worship their God. Does this sound familiar? I will be with you even unto death. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. So you have this weird parallel story where you have two outsiders, and in the story of Rahab, an ultimate outsider. She's a Canaanite prostitute, but ultimately, because of her faith, she shows Hesed to Israel, and then she's incorporated into the people of Israel and becomes a worshiper of the true God. So these stories rhyme. They're very similar. Now, another important detail, hidden away in a genealogy. Uh, Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by... Where do you think Boaz learned to show kindness to the outsider? His mother. His mother. Salmon is the father of Boaz, and his mother, Rahab. Who taught him to be this Gibor Chayil? It was a woman who showed chesed and received chesed from the God of Israel. Now reread what we just read, and you can see how the dots connect. Ruth says, why are you doing this for me? Why, why, why are you showing me this chesed? Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, 
since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It was Rahab, his mother, who came to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And now he extends it again to the outsider. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Okay. What are we to make of all this? What are we to take away? Uh, some specific words for different groups of people. Um, some of these specific words may or may not apply apply to you, but um, there's certain, certainly something to learn for everybody from these stories, but I have some specific words for certain groups of people coming out of this story. The first word is to men. Uh, in particular, the young men, soon-to-be fathers, already fathers, young men. I don't know when the cutoff for that is. You can decide what young man means. Um, but it applies to everybody, but in particularly young men. Boaz is a worthy man in an unworthy time. He's a worthy man in an unworthy time, which means just because the whole world around him was corrupt and wicked, he did not have an excuse to not pursue character, holiness, and righteousness. Boaz is not the man who makes excuses. Now, the reason why this is so important is you live in an unworthy time. Every cultural and societal pressure is pulling you as a man, not closer to God, but away from him. And this goes from anything to the developing diminutive conception of what masculinity and manhood looks like. It goes to technology, to entertainment, to pornography. All of this is pulling you away. You live in dark times. Nevertheless, you have no excuse you have zero excuse to not pursue character, righteousness, and holiness. You can be a worthy man in an unworthy time. And this isn't just for your sake, it's for all of our sake. We need you. When a culture loses its young men to wickedness, everyone suffers. Every last person in that culture suffers. We need you. We need young men to pursue character, We need you. It's not just for your sake, it's for all of our sake. So what you do is you learn to work hard. You look out for those in need. You care for their vulnerable. You take responsibility for those who God has entrusted you with to care for and provide for. You rise up and you bless the name of the Lord. You be the Gibor Chayil that God has meant you to be. You can be a worthy man in an unworthy time. A word to the mothers. Where do you think Boaz learned how to be this Gibor Chayil? He learned it from his mother. Rahab starts off as a Canaanite prostitute, but the scriptures also tell us, all the way in the New Testament, that she becomes a woman of faith to such a degree that she's listed as an example of faith for us to emulate. So in a very similar manner, our culture has a ever-growing diminutive conception of, uh, 
diminutive conception of mothering. It's belittled. And what you mothers in the room have to understand is that mothering is a sacred duty, a sacred vocation. Mothers, you are charged with being the safeguards of the future. You are the guardians of the future. Why? Because the children that you raise and nurture will be the very ones tasked with fighting the monsters of tomorrow. And monsters are always at the door. And so you, in mothering, are a guardian of the future. You are raising up the people that will confront the darkness of the future. You, in the present, are raising up the protectors of the future. It is a sacred call and duty and vocation. Every home is a micro, microcosm, and it makes a world of difference of what occurs there. And so don't for one second act like it's no big deal. You have been given a sacred duty and task. And so it doesn't mean that if you mother well that everything will go perfect and all your kids will come out perfect and, and if, if one walks astray then you failed miserably, but it, it does mean this. God has entrusted you with the sacred vocation of being a guardian of the future. Teach your kids to love and serve God. The deepest prayer in your soul should be that your kids love and serve God faithfully all the days of their life. Additionally, for, say, grandparents or aunts and uncles, or maybe you're not a blood relative, but you're a mentor, someone who the young ones look up to, and maybe not just young ones, but maybe your adult children, everyone needs living embodiments. They need examples to aspire to. And so what they get out of you is examples of what Gibor Hayil and Ishet Hayil look like. And so you want to give people examples. Doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you got it all figured out, but you could at least say, hey, look for me, look what I'm doing. I'm trying, I'm trying to serve God. For grandparents and great-grandparents, one of the greatest achievements of your life would be your children or your grandchildren saying, I don't got it all figured out, but I want what grandpa and grandma had. They lived faithfully and they loved each other. They weren't perfect. So don't feel bad if you made a lot of mistakes. They weren't perfect. But you know, I want, man, grandpa loved God. When he pushed me on the swing, he'd always say prayers over me. That's what you want. Be the Gibor Hayil, the worthy man. Be the Ishet Hayil, the worthy woman that God is calling you to be. And if you don't, it's not just you who will pay the price. All of us will pay the price. Now, another word, a final word. For those of you who, when you hear things like this, maybe you're not encouraged. It's like, well, I'm glad there's people who, who desire to be a worthy man, a worthy woman, but... Here's the deal. It's too little too late for me. I'm too broken. I'm too damaged. I have too much shame. I have too much in my past. I have too much wrongdoing. You don't know my story. You have no clue. I'm too broken. I'm too damaged. It's not going to work. Who was the first Ishet Hayil worthy woman in our story? A Canaanite prostitute. 
So if God can take a Canaanite prostitute and bring her into the family and make her such a woman of character that thousands of years later the New Testament would look to her as an example of faith, don't trip about your past. Give to Christ your past and your present and watch him work. He is faithful and true to finish the work he began in you. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what is the, what is the story of the New Testament? God doesn't look down and look for, well, let me find the, the, the couple worthy men and worthy women and help them get on my team. God looks down and finds unworthy men and unworthy women and unworthy women but he takes that which is unworthy and makes them worthy. The prerequisite, the requirement to becoming the worthy man or worthy woman is that you bring your unworthiness to him. And you're justified by faith. So the process begins with trust, allegiance. You come to him with nothing and he gives you grace. And from that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we bring the unworthy aspects. And we receive forgiveness and grace and mercy. And then God begins a work in us. And then it says on top of that, not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, how could you rejoice in sufferings? knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We come by faith, we receive grace. God puts his spirit, he pours out his spirit upon us. And even when we face trial and tribulation, we could rejoice because that produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And in that there is no shame. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far off Moabites, while we were Canaanite prostitutes, while we were fill in the blank with whatever your story might have in it. God loved us and he brings us in and he pours out his spirit and he begins a work and he is faithful to finish it. So you now in the present commit yourself to pursuing him, developing character, holiness, righteousness, not just for your sake, for all of our sakes. We need each other. We need this. Be the Gibor Hayil, the Ishet Hayil God is calling you to be. Let's stand as we take communion.